Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And in today's episode we're going to be talking about episode 5 of the run, The Schizoid Man. So huge thank you to everyone who listened to our recent episode on Free For All. We've had some lovely comments from people on email and on Twitter and it's always really nice to hear from people who are listening to the podcast and enjoying it. So please do get in touch with us on social media or on the website and if you're listening on iTunes please do think about leaving us a review because it really helps. Before we get into the episode I think a little bit of discussion about you know the schizoid man itself I mean it's a classic episode of The Prisoner it's one of our favourites although I think I think we've said that about almost all of them so far. <laughs> Firstly I think a major contrast to what we had with Free For All is that this is really um, an example of how the show was able to do in just 50 odd minutes a really well plotted very intricate storyline that covered a huge amount of surreal and strange nature of the prisoner but it moves at breakneck pace and it's just it's the kind of episode which i think shows how it didn't ever try and dumb down the concept for the viewers it's it's not impossible to follow but it's a really well thought out storyline with loads of different twists and turns and i think it's actually quite hard sometimes to find uh, shows like this now on sort of the mainstream sort of primetime era yeah i think if you were putting together a shortened run of prisoner episodes that were necessary for the ongoing story as in as much as there is one you probably wouldn't put free for all in there it's more of an allegorical episode Whereas I think you would put Schizoid Man in there because I think there are so many crucial things coming up in this episode that will be important as the show goes on. I think even saying that, I think Free For All is one of the seven that, that McGowan says is one of the the <laughs> main the main uh, episodes which would have set out the overall themes of uh, what The Prisoner was meant to be about. But you're right, I think it's more about, well Free For All I'm talking about, is more about the themes rather than uh, the direct plot that we're seeing in um, in the journey of number six uh, through the village. I mean, it's very much uh, a story about, as we've discussed, you know, politics, the media, democracy, and indeed uh, the fact that the village likes to create the illusion of a visible power structure, but always is actually hiding the real power behind the scenes. Um, certainly that concept is something that runs through the series, but... Yeah, I think it's more an episode that allows the show to comment on various things rather than being a key episode of Number Six's journey. Also, it has lots of weird asides that I don't think we see again, although I'm sure I'll be proven wrong as our episodes uh, continue. I mean, it has that strange cult of people who are in the sunglasses watching Rover. Mm -hmm. I don't think we really see them again, although there are allusions to the mysterious um, and entrancing power of rover later on also we have um one very important thing in uh, free for all which is that it introduces a female number two so up until this point all the number twos have been male and although there have been characters who've been very important in the village hierarchy who have been female what's really interesting about free for all is that it does introduce a uh, female number two uh, at the very end of the episode wonderfully played by rachel herbert yeah and it's it's been well documented and often spoken about that Patrick McGuinn didn't want to have romantic subplots 
in The Prisoner or many other shows that he was involved in. He didn't like it. Um, he, he didn't like having to have romantic scenes with co-stars. And I think what this meant is that it forced the writers to find much more interesting ways to introduce female characters into the series because you couldn't fall back on the standard there'll be a female villager and they'll fall in love and there'll be some you know angsty romance that you can see would be put in if you remade it today and indeed was put in when they remade it in 2009 in fact I think they had a tedious love triangle in that one in this one pretty much every episode female characters being introduced that have other things to do other than just be a love interest so in Arrival you've got number nine who was plotting an escape with Cobb and then um, tries to help number six escape instead in terms of Ben you've got Nadia who isn't what she seems at all in A, B and C you've got number 14 the scientist behind the experiment and also Madame Angadine who who knows if she really was a, a secret agent she might have been we don't know what that C dream was all about, if it was real or not. And also B in A, B and C as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in Free For All, you've got number 58, who then turns out to be number two in the end. Yeah, and I'm not sure how common it was, but I think it is really interesting that even in its limited 17-episode run, there are some really interesting roles for female characters uh, in The Prisoner, although they were never equal billing, um, I think that's fair to say, in episodes of the show. They were extremely memorable, and I think in all cases, they were wonderfully portrayed as well um, by a variety of uh, great actresses. And I think that's our our segue into um, Schizoid Man, because this episode has uh, number 24, played by the wonderful Jane Merrow. And after we've done our episode uh, review and recap and discussion... We hope you stay with us because we were really lucky um, a couple of weeks back to have a chat with Jane and she will be talking to us about her time working on The Prisoner, her long and illustrious career on stage and screen in the UK and the US and also her more recent foray into independent short filmmaking as well. So the episode today we're going to talk about The Schizoid Man, there's going to be an interview with Jane And as always, towards the end of the episode, we're going to have our roundup of news from the world of The Prisoner with Rick Davey. Yep, so that's all to come. But for now, we're going to dive into the world of The Schizoid Man. Our prize prisoner, the one we call number six. Toughest case I've ever handled. I could crack him, of course, but I can't use the normal techniques. It's too valuable. So we start with our same intro sequences last time we've got the new shot of Buckingham Palace in the credits and the voice of number two is Robert Reedy rather than Anton Rogers who is number two in the episode which flashes up as the guest stars Jane Merrow and Anton Rogers written by Terence Feely directed by Pat Jackson and we open straight into a conversation that Six is having with the new character number 24 and they're practicing a mind-reading trick using Xena cards, which are those cards that have circles, squares, wavy lines, crosses, stars on them that people use in order to try and prove that they have ESP or, or whatever you want to call it, that they can tell what card somebody else is looking at. And they're cards that have cropped up in quite a few things. I remember they're in an episode of Columbo, um, <laughs> the one 
with the the magician who uh, accidentally, in inverted commas, gets uh, killed by his own uh, guillotine. Yeah, I think I remember the use of Xena cards most from uh, the opening of Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. So they've cropped up a few times, but I never knew they were called Xena cards before. Hmm. Um, I just thought they were those mind-reading cards. Yeah, and number six is the one who has the cards, and 24 is the person who is doing the mind-reading, supposedly. What's interesting here, I think, is in many episodes, there are so many scenes of people coming into number six's flat and him wanting to get rid of them. But this episode, without any introduction of the backstory has a situation where 6 and 24 clearly appear to know each other quite well. They appear to be friends, and he is helping her practice this mind-reading trick uh, for an upcoming, I think it's a village show or a village... Village festival. Yeah, a village festival. it's a month away. And critically, because we're jumping in to the scene like this, we have no real idea about the backstory to the relationship. Or indeed, as um, I suppose the episode proceeds, it's, it's unclear at this point whether this is an engineered relationship where somebody has placed number 24 into the life of uh, number six and he has decided to work with uh, number 24 for the purposes of developing this magic trick. Yeah, because normally he's deeply suspicious about anyone who attempts to befriend him in any (laughs) way. And yet here they seem to have quite a, a natural sort of friendship chemistry going on between them. She thanks him for helping her practice her trick. She says that nobody else believed her that she could do this. And number six says that they have a lack of imagination. <laughs> so whether he really does believe that these things are possible or whether he is being friendly to someone who he sees as being just a, a friendly, genuine person, I don't know. But she's not just practicing for the mind reading trick for the festival either she's entering the photographic contest and apparently quite a few other contests as well except maybe the pole vault but she might go for it um and when she goes to take a photograph of him she knocks over is it like a is it a bottle of non-alcoholic vodka or something is it one of it's those? something it's like or maybe like a um a soda spritzer or something yeah yeah, yeah. um but when it falls it uh, i mean it only lands on the table but it hits number six's thumb And this is the first thing I thought was really nice about this episode. It's a wonderful little detail, but when it falls, it hits his thumb and it creates a small bruise right near the cuticle. And it's a subtle thing. They do a close-up to show that it's been bruised, but it's nice how that becomes an important plot point later on. That's what I meant at the beginning when I was talking about how intricately plotted this episode is. There are lots of little details here and there, and it adds up to a, a very satisfying payoff at the end of the episode. Yeah, so when she takes the photograph... You can not only see the bruise on his thumb, but you can also see a calendar in the background that says that today is February 10th. And it's one of those instant things where you peel the back off and it's already developed. Mm. So he gets the photograph straight away. So we see um, these two crucial pieces of information in the picture. But they've finished practising the Xena cards for today. He says that she's got 73 out of 100 so far, which I assume is quite good. Well, it's better than the average. <laughs> One in five, it should be. Uh, but again, it's uh, it's an interesting element because with all these things that are happening in the village involving experiments that seem to be uh, to do with mind control and 
the idea of getting inside people's minds, etc. I think it's interesting that the trick that she's practicing is one to do with ESP. Mm. Um, it just adds to the motif of some of the strange kinds of things which are deemed to be entertaining tricks that might be performed at a village festival. And again, given that you know the episode Chimes of Big Ben was um, only a few weeks back uh, in the chronology of broadcast, they do seem to have a lot of these... Uh, a lot of these festivals and exhibitions as well. Yeah, but well, it keeps the residents occupied. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not clear that number six is doing anything for the festival this time. Yeah. It's not building any wacky sculpture. They're pretty wise to that now. So then we cut to the control room where they're watching number six sleep on the big screen on the wall. And this lamp that is descending down from above him, um, starting to pulsate... I think number two calls it a pulsator, <laughs> um, using light and sound to uh, sort of hypnotise him in his sleep, I guess. Yeah, and number two in this episode is, uh, as we mentioned earlier on, Anton Rogers. He died maybe mid-2000s, I think. He's fantastic in this. He's a really good number two. He is known for a tremendous number of credits on TV and film and theatre um, he was in a lot of the ITC shows as well. I think he popped up in Danger Man and in Man in a Suitcase. He was in Rand and Hopco, like odd episodes here and there. For some reason, I don't know why, but I remember him from uh, when he was in sort of his his later era sitcoms like uh, Fresh Fields and French Fields <laughs> and Made to December. I don't know why I remember <laughs> him in that, but that's where I remember him from. Yeah, so he's a number two in this episode. And interestingly, he, uh, the controller in this episode, or supervisor, is it supervisor? In this supervisor. One? Supervisor, yeah. is not Peter Swanick. It's uh, Earl Cameron who plays a different supervisor. So it's interesting that they've uh, they rotated the cast a little bit as well there. Yeah. So once they've got number six under, some white-coated goons appear <laughs> in his cottage and they check his pulse they inject him with something and carry him away in a deep sleep and they, they don't just take him they also take his calendar his desk calendar that says that it is wednesday february the 10th and they take his watch which is on the bedside table as well and then we see him undergo an operation where they're surgically removing a mole from his wrist which is going to become important later and then when he wakes up again he's in uh, a sort of hospital bed, and the chart on the end says that it's now February the 11th. Yeah, so the dates are very important, even though it's just one date that is uh, reproduced a lot in this episode. You have to pay attention to a lot of the details, I think, to get some of the intricacies of what the villagers' plot is here. But yeah, uh, this is part of this seemingly overnight experiment, which they are convincing him uh, has happened. But then we also cut to um, the start of some of the experiments that the village scientists are performing on number six. Uh, namely, they're starting to do some kind of conditioning experiments to get number six to start using his uh, left hand as his uh, dominant hand using sort of electro electroshock therapy. And then when he wakes up again, he's in a completely different room. Yeah. And it's February 10th. And he looks around disoriented to be in a completely different room. Uh, he goes over to the mirror and sees a slightly different face. He's got a moustache now. <laughs> His hair is slightly darker. And in many ways, this echoes 
the scene in Arrival when he first wakes up in the room and believes that he is in familiar surroundings until he looks out the window. But this time he's in unfamiliar surroundings right from the beginning. And it's it's messing with his sense of orientation already. And when he goes to the wardrobe, he finds a jacket in there, which is the standard issue piped blazer. But the badge on it uh, does not say number six, but it actually says number 12. He looks at it and it's completely confusing to him. And just as he's kind of figuring that out, we hear a phone ring and it's one of those red phones, not the giant red phones that we saw (laughs) in A, B and C, but a standard uh, sort of bat phone thing. And again, the red phones in the series tend to indicate that somebody from the village hierarchy appears to be calling. And in this case, yes, it's number two calling. And he addresses number six as number 12. And he refers to the fact that number 12 has uh, just arrived and indeed, I think, talks about the flight that he's just come in on. Also implying that the means to get into the village is not just a ruse having a helicopter around. It does Mm -hmm. seem to be at a location which requires some kind of air travel to get there. Yeah, and it's telling that when he answers the phone, he picks it up with his left hand and holds it in his left hand, which is the first subtle sign that this conditioning appears to have taken effect. (laughs) So number six is clearly very confused about what's going on, especially being referred to as uh, number 12. He goes to meet number two. As he's leaving, a couple of interesting things happen. First, he sees a Sikh man who walks past, who says, good morning, number 12. So other people in the village are addressing him as number 12. Then he sees a woman who's pushing a gentleman along in a wheelchair who has like, some bizarre face visor on <laughs> as well. Again, I love these little details um, that they throw into all the uh, village dress. And when number six, as number 12, asks why he's being addressed as number 12, she says... Well, that's what you were called the last time I saw you. Yeah. Implying that they've met before or that she has met the actual number 12 before. Or she could even just be someone who's been planted there to confound him on his way to the Green Dome. Yeah, I think we've discussed this before, but it's always really interesting to work out whether the village is designed around number six and everyone, including all the village residents, are in on it, or it is a more general prison for lots of different people because you could interpret that like you say as being a situation where this woman is there to confound him alternatively she is already aware that uh, there is a number 12 in the village who we haven't met throughout the course of the series so far who looks just like number six does so he's ushered in by the butler And number two greets him like an old friend. Delighted to see you, old chap. (laughs) And offers him breakfast. And the two options he gives him are described as a la carte or table d'hote. And I don't know if we're reading too much into this, as often we do in these these episodes. Um, But both are French terms. Mm. And I know that in Free For All, they had this bizarre reference to the food being French versus international. Mm. I think um, when number six is trying to determine the nature of sort of the international status of, of who might be running the village, uh, he questions whether the food is French. And number two in free-for-all says, no, it's international. And here we have another reference to food 
uh, specifically breakfast as well, because mm. that comes up a lot with number six. Uh, yeah. What do they mean anyway? I mean, I know what a la carte means, but what does table d'hote mean? I think that means the equivalent of a like a set menu or a fixed price menu. Okay. So I suppose here what they're also saying is you can either choose what you want from the a la carte, in which case they know he's going to choose uh, the flapjacks, or they can have a set menu, which also has the flapjacks as well, because they know about what he's uh, <laughs> been conditioned to want to eat. Uh, but there's like a, a buffet-style setup where there's several different dishes in, in metal containers, and he looks through all of them before opting for what looks to me like pancakes, but they refer to them as flapjacks, which... I think of as something completely different. So I think there, I think a flapjack. It, again, we need translation on this. We're being very <laughs> ignorant about this. Um, so flapjacks, I think, are sort of slightly thicker versions of what we would think of as pancakes. Okay. In the US. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, I got it. I got it, yeah. Because then he he makes a joke about how they've always called him Flapjack Charlie, which is strange because his name isn't even Charlie. And again, this contrasts to the fact that number six, in any case, always has eggs. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he has, uh, is it fried eggs in, in Arrival? Yeah. And then are they poached in another episode yeah. in A, B and C? Yeah, he's, he's po- yeah, he's poaching them or boiling them or something. Yeah. Something different anyway. But when number six opts for the pancake slash flapjacks over all the other dishes. Number two is watching him and he gets this funny smile on his face. Yes, and I think it's it's a very subtle moment, but it's that indication that number two is checking that their plan is actually working, that the conditioning that they've done to number six to change some of his uh, behaviours, in this case, you know, his choice of breakfast, is starting to work. Maybe he's just trying to check that he does actually go for the flapjacks, which he hopes he will, implying um, that the methods they're using are working. Yeah. And number two makes reference to him being a very good field man and jokes that he himself is stuck in admin, Hmm. which is sort of an an odd choice of phrase for someone who is effectively running an operation like this. Yeah, and I think it does tie in with some of the confusion that we've seen over how the village structure works, which again was hinted at in uh, Free For All. Although the number two in an episode often seems to be the main adversary to number six, it is clear that they're working for some higher level of, I don't know, village overlords in some way. And the fact that he views it as admin, I mean, it could be a slightly sarcastic comment, but also I think it does imply that there are obvious levels above the number two position and essentially you're put in that role to do this job of trying to crack number six but it might also refer to the fact that it's not as exciting as some of the other jobs that somebody of his status might be accustomed to again suggesting that maybe some of the people involved in running the village are involved in more action orientated daring do style spy adventures (laughs) uh, which ties into what we suspect may have been um, not only uh, number six's form of profession in some way, but is also tied to the organisation or whatever 
uh, you'd like to call it, that runs the village and is capturing people and holding them there for specific reasons. Yeah, because two jokes at number 12 always did enjoy his food, even before a job from the Black File, Hmm. which sounds very sinister and gives the impression of work that is distasteful enough that most people wouldn't want to eat before they went and did it. (laughs) Um, So we can surmise that whoever this number 12 is... Uh, has frequently done some very dodgy things for whoever is calling the shots. And then there's another reference to flying, where he he says about, you know, hope you're right after all that flying, which implies that he's come a long way. But we don't really know where he's come from. If he's a field agent, he could have been coming from anywhere in the world where he'd been sent, hmm. I suppose. But we, but we note that this is also to do with uh, number two's attempt to make number six think that he is number 12. But we can also rely on the fact, I think, that these are the things that number, the real number 12 has actually experienced. For example, flying from somewhere else in order to get to the village. Yeah. So number six apologises that he hasn't shaved, slightly <laughs> sarcastically. And then he says, he, he sort of snaps and says, what's it all about? And this is exactly the same thing that he says in Arrival. I think in his first encounter with number two back in Arrival, he shouts, what's it all about? Mm. And he does it again now. He questions the uh, ability to grow a moustache overnight, given that there is a copy of the tally-ho on the table dated February 10th. The headline of which seems to end with further term or another term or something like that. Yes, and that, I think, if those are the words which it's meant to say, that does place the episode potentially after Free For All when we've had an episode all about the village elections. Yeah. And number two jokes that uh, he'd taken longer to grow a massage after Bucharest and that someone called Susan had hated him not having a moustache. Yeah, so as it turns out later on, uh, Susan is number 12's wife. And uh, the interesting reference to Bucharest here, now at that time um, it would have been a Soviet Union satellite state and it would have been east of the Iron Curtain. So... There is all this talk that's going on in these early episodes of The Prisoner about which side runs the village. And it's interesting that uh, number two is making reference to an operation that number 12 would have performed on that side of the Iron Curtain. And what follows is a remarkable piece of psychological manipulation where number two tells number six that effectively he intends to make him doubt his identity and then he will crack. But it's dressed up as number two, addressing number 12, informing him that this is what they are going to do to number six. And it's a a threat within a, a comment because they both know that he is number six. And yet number two, of course, isn't going to say that. There's nothing that number six is going to be able to say that will change that effectively he's able to openly say to number six this is what we are going to do to you without actually having to say it because he's not going to drop the pretense that he's talking to number 12. Yes um, although we know that uh, the experiments that were done on number six to condition him were done whilst he was unconscious and they have meant that he is conditioned for example to use his left hand Conditioned to like flapjacks. Conditioned. <laughs> uh, he is uh, conditioned to like flapjacks, uh, etc. He does still know that something is wrong. It hasn't completely, sort of subconsciously reached his mental state yet. So this is a, 
I suppose this is the reveal of what the intricate village plan is this time. Uh, what they've done is they have decided to make number six believe that he has a new character called number 12, who who has a startling resemblance to number six. They have brought in a character who is the real number 12. They have placed him into number six's life, and they are now making number six, who they address as number 12, believe that they are now going to crack number six, who is actually number 12. Yeah. Um, and when number six insists that he is number six and he, he takes off his badge and won't wear it, number two responds by saying, you know, oh, great, you're already in character. You know, how method of you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, I just love this plot line. It's so clever. And actually it's a horribly dark psychological <laughs> trick they're playing on six. And like you say, it's made worse by the fact that they are, telling number six, who is still partially aware that he is number six, even though he's been conditioned to have the behaviour of, of number 12. It's making him start to question his own identity, but not fully. So so the fact that he's questioning it rather than believing that he is number 12 uh, instinctively must be creating this split in his personality where he's struggling to retain a sense of identity whilst being involved in a ploy seemingly to break the version of number six who is occupying um, his life. The one thing about the badge I think is really cool as well, because although they they talk about the fact they have a file on number six all the time and they have all the information they need about him, um, I like the fact that when he tries to pin the badge on number six, six rejects it. And this is important because actually the village should know that Six rarely, if ever, actually wears his number six badge. Mm. So there are always these moments where the village thinks they know everything about how number six behaves, but there are always these details. And I think this is a rejection of the badge that shows that there is still some number six innately inside him. He hasn't been broken yet. Yeah, it, it, he. although he is someone who rejects the very identity of number six as a number... Um, I think in the previous episode when the op- telephone operator called and asked for number six and he says, this is the number of this place, mm. um, he won't embrace that as an identity. In this episode, he is effectively trying to prove that he is number six, even while rejecting it as an identity by refusing to wear the badge. Yeah. And if you go back to, you know, the the tagline of, you know, of, uh, number six's character in the opening credits. I'm not a number. I'm a free man. Ironically, in this episode, he is trying to prove that he is a number, <laughs> that he is number six. Yeah. So for all his rejection of it uh, in all the other episodes here, number six is trying to say, I am a number. I am number six. And indeed, uh, maybe it's a, you know, as we were talking before in previous episodes about how each episode is, is subtly different and how it approaches uh, the prisoner mythology. I think that's a really interesting spin to have established this iconic statement of him and then to completely turn the tables on it uh, by making him almost accept that he is number six by forcing him to defend his own identity. Um, he would never do it of his own free will, but if you take the one form of identification that he has away from him, he will fiercely defend it. But he doesn't actually realise, perhaps, that what he's defending 
is the label that's been put on him by the village. Yeah. And indeed, when number two throws number six's file to him for him to study, he instinctively catches it with his left hand. And number two makes a point of saying, oh, no, you've got to work on that because number six is right handed. And you can see he's already grappling internally with this question of, but if I am number six, why did I just catch it with my left hand? Mm. You know, he, why does he not feel like himself? It's if you'd gone through your whole life always doing something one way and then suddenly you're doing it another way without even thinking about it and everyone is calling you something different it's going to shake even someone as resolute as number six is <laughs> in some way and then finally number two says to him that uh, there are a couple of changes they need to make to his appearance so he's going to get a couple of his girls to work him over there's a rather creepy line when he says something like Oh, don't worry, they're very pretty. Yeah, it's very sinister. And I think it also calls back to what number two said in Free For All, when two has placed number 58 in the life of number six and says that number 58 will be his driver, will be um, able to do anything that number six needs during uh, six's campaign, which again, it's a very creepy uh, response to how they might be trying to manipulate Six a little bit by appealing to a weakness that they perceive Six might actually have. But actually, we know that both Six and McGowan did not have this weakness at all, so it's kind of lost on him. Mm. So there's a brief uh, makeover montage <laughs> as number two's two girls dye his hair back to its original colour, shave his moustache off, etc. And then Number two, who is watching, emerges and in quite a sinister fashion says, you'll hardly know yourself, number 12. Hmm. Normally you get makeover montages in, you know, skippy, happy rom-coms. But <laughs> this is the most sinister makeover montage I've ever seen. <laughs> Making someone look like their original self while convincing them that they're not their original self. You'd hardly know yourself, would you, number 12? Uh, so then two escorts him to his own house and six notices that they've made subtle changes there's a statue that's silver when it should be gilt and when he starts pointing these changes out number two insists that he he shouldn't try and point these changes out to the real number six because he'll know that it's not true <laughs> because he has a very strong sense of territory <laughs> It's, it's it's again this di direct challenge dressed up as friendly, helpful advice, which makes it so sinister. And he gives them a password, Gemini, to be able to identify himself once they get started. And just before the arrival of number 12, who is now pretending to be number six... Uh, number two leaves, but uh, before he does, he tells number six, who believes he is number 12, that the password uh, that he must use in order to identify himself as number 12 to number two is the word Gemini, which is Latin for twins. Mm. And of course, there's, there's a lot of doubles going on because we're about to be introduced to his double, who, as you say, is number 12, but is pretending to be number six. And 12 is the double of 6, which I guess is a ways number 12, because <laughs> 6 is double. But also, Alison, 
the catch played by Jane Merrow. She's number 24, which is the double of 12. Ah, yeah, so we have 6, 12, and 24. Yeah. But no 48 in the episode. Okay, I, I couldn't find 48. I did look, <laughs> but I, I couldn't find one. So now enter number 12 in a reverse jacket uh, to number 6's, white with black piping, and wearing a number 6 badge, which the real number 6 would not do. <laughs> and the first thing he does is exclaim, what the devil? which is going to be a a recurring theme later. And there's a very nice exchange between them where he asks if he's from a people's copying service or one of those double agents they're hearing so much about these days. (laughs) And again, we've seen in the world of the prisoner doubles already appearing quite a few times. Mm. We've had in Arrival, we had the gardener slash electrician. In Free For All, we had, is it 113B? Yeah who was uh, the photographer and then was then revealed to be the uh, newspaper seller as well, the guy selling the tally-ho. Yeah. Um, So it's clear that there are doubles of people in the village, but we don't really know if they are twins or if they're created by the village in some way. Um, But it's interesting that that theme has been introduced in the series in the first few episodes, and now we have an episode directly about the use of uh, a double in the form of number 12 trying to replicate number six. Yeah. And the exchange between them is great because number 12 in the white jacket does an extremely good job of being number six uh, in the role of six being confronted with an apparent double who is trying to shake his resolve. Um, he's he's confident. Everything that he says and does is is what number six would do. Um, you know when he jokes about, I, am I supposed to go, you know, running off screaming? Who am I? Which again is going to come up later. He is the one who is poised and behaving like number six. The real number six in the black jacket is shaken, mm. and. When he responds, he occasionally gets in a, a good zinger, <laughs> um, like when he says, oh, are you claiming to be a gentleman as well? He's not his usual self. He's not his confident yeah. self. You can tell that he is the one who is a little bit unsure in this situation, whereas number 12 in the white jacket is being a very good number six. Yeah, it's a beautiful performance by McGowan in this episode. And I think a huge amount of credit has to go to the people involved in doing the visual effects in this episode, because mm-hmm. uh, this episode is more than 50 years old now. And the work of having two Magoans on screen at any one time is virtually seamless even today. It just looks fantastic. I love the way that they have six and 12 playing off each other as if they are actually in the same room. It looks really good. And I think you know, compared to other shows of its era that, that often did similar kind of things. There's no thick black line around one of the characters mm. who've been superimposed on. I mean, it's just been beautifully composed. And it just shows that the production values of The Prisoner were way above, I think, some of the other shows that were on TV at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they can use all from black style computer work to put multiple versions of mm. somebody in the same scene. Um, I assume they must have been literally splicing together actual tape yeah. in order to do this yeah and double exposing shots to um to get them to superimpose it's wonderful yeah. stuff and in keeping with the double up uh, motif if you look on the desk when they're having the conversation there are two statues side by side hmm. next to each other in the shot which I thought was quite nice 
And they have a bit of an exchange about number 12 having to learn to smoke right-handed because, well, number six. Is it easiest to go black jacket, white jacket at this point? I'm not sure. The real number six starts to smoke left-handed and the real number 12, being number six, exclaims that uh, if he's if he's going to be a good number six, he has to learn to smoke right-handed. And he chokes when he tries to smoke a cigar, which again is very un-six-like. And number 12 tells him that he should try the black Russian cigarettes that are in a different box, um, even though number six himself never touches them. Mm. So he's clearly been conditioned in several different things here that he, he suddenly can't smoke the thing that he would normally smoke. And in fact, he, he rejects the lighter that number 12 offers to light the cigar and lights it with a match instead. Yeah, which again plays into uh, one of the final scenes between Six and Alison when they make reference uh, to the use of a lighter as well. Um, but it's clear that there's antagonism between 12 as 6 and 6 as 12. Um, so they decide that they will settle this like gentlemen. So they go off to the village recreation room to have a standoff to try and, I suppose, prove who is the real number six. These foils have all a length. I'm a good lord. I'm not. Act five. Scene two. You have done your homework. Haven't you? So off they go to the rec room which appears to be in the same place where they had the art show and <laughs> several other venues. They're going to have a shooting exercise. No, doesn't use real bullets uh, because number two wouldn't like that. The shooting game that they're playing is more like a game uh, involves these silhouettes, which is a motif that was started in Free For All when they were doing the truth test as mm. well. So you have these silhouettes of people that pop up and you have to shoot them. Yeah. So number... 12 reminds number six once again that he's meant to be right-handed mm. which seems to put six's aim off mm. a little bit because uh, he doesn't do as well on the shooting test much to his confusion and slight annoyance and two and the new supervisor are watching this and number two comments about how uncanny it is that number 12 has got mm. his whole style down and the new supervisor says that in haiti we'd say he's stolen his soul. Yeah, and we mentioned it very briefly early on, but when 12 as 6 first saw 6 as 12, <laughs> that's the way to, um, that's where it goes, he said, what the devil, when he first saw him. Mm. And this is going to happen again later on, but it's interesting that whenever a character comes across the situation where there are these uh, doubles, often when they're seeing 6 as 12, they they do make some reference to there being something not right about this doppelganger situation which is <laughs> developed. Um, you know, the first is a reference to uh, the devil, what the devil, and this time one about stealing one's soul. Uh, and I think later on, it's Alison, uh, yeah. number 24, who says, good heavens. Mm. So there are these very subtle sort of pseudo-religious references mm. to the appearance of, uh, of the doppelgangers uh, in this episode of The Prisoner. Mm. So they decide that they're going to carry on this uh, face-off between them with a fencing mm. match. And we get a lovely Hamlet reference here where number 12 says, these foils are all a length. And number six replies, I'm my good lord. And they comment between them that it's from Hamlet. Act 5, scene 2. 
this is really interesting because okay spoilers for hamlet but it's 400 years old so i think i think we'll be all right in act five of hamlet hamlet encounters osric this obsequious courtier who has come to ask him to uh, participate in this duel against laertes which is really a plot for claudius and laertes to be able to kill hamlet they're going to make sure that laertes gets a sword that is sharp and has got poison coated on it so that when they duel um he'll be able to kill him and everyone will think that it was an accident that happened during the duel but when osric comes to ask hamlet to participate in this duel hamlet who's there with horatio makes fun of osric for being this sort of annoying slightly slimy courtier who he would just rather just go away so that's act five scene one then in act five scene two when you actually have the duel between hamlet and laertes osric is there again and he's the one who is handling the swords so when hamlet asks him the falls are all a length osric says i'm my good lord and what's crucial here is that it's number 12 who takes Hamlet's line, he says, the falls are all a length. And number six instinctively replies with Osric's line, which is, I'm my good lord. And this is a power play, because this is number 12 claiming the main role, the protagonist role. He's he's the one who is saying, this is my story. I am the, the central hero of this tale. And you, number 12, are an annoying courtier sent by the guy in charge to uh, to try and get me to do something stupid. And number six seems kind of annoyed that he has inadvertently taken on the role of the minor character of uh, the role of Osric when number six is ego would presumably want him to claim the role of hamlet himself so uh, th- that's that's what i read into it anyway but i just find it fascinating that 12 takes hamlet's line and six gets stuck with the uh unimportant line of osric that's a solid tangent <laughs> <laughs> no that's fascinating actually i i think i mean because they point it out i you know i knew it was a line from hamlet we've seen that play many many times because you're because uh, you're a big hamlet fan but i didn't uh i didn't get the potential subtext of the the characters who were delivering both parts of that exchange so they fence and it doesn't end in tragedy the way it does in hamlet <laughs> thankfully with uh, pretty much everyone dead but six doesn't fence very well he's trying to fence right-handed mm. because 12 is fencing right-handed and uh, I'm resisting the urge to start quoting The Princess Bride here. <laughs> but he he's, he can't do it. And, and 12 makes a crack about, you know, it's good agricultural stuff, but you wouldn't get my place on the Olympic team. <laughs> so presumably the real six was an Olympic fencer. Yeah. And as we later learned, potentially an Olympic boxer as well. Yes. Because after losing the shooting and the fencing, uh, they're then outside the rec room when they start having a bit of a box with each other. And Six can't figure out whether he's meant to be left-handed or right-handed. There's something instinctive that is confusing him and gets knocked on his ass. Yeah, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, I do like the way he's portraying this struggle between his his instinctive use of 
the right hand, because that's what he would use as number six, but the conditioning being so overwhelming that he has to fight the conditioning to use what he would usually reflexively use as his uh, as his dominant arm. One thing, again, I think to add to both these dueling sequences as well is, I think, as motifs, both the fencing, the boxing, and actually the location of the rec room with all of its different sports uh, laid out like a like a gym hall, mm. um, that motif does appear, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, uh, they do appear later on uh, in the series in the episode Once Upon a Time. So as a motif, it's it's interesting that it occurs here, but um, it pops up later on. And again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but my understanding is that uh, the episode Once Upon a Time was actually filmed very early on in the run. So you can imagine that maybe thematic links between some of these episodes is stronger based on the production order rather than the uh, broadcast order. So... Before the fisticuffs can continue, Rover appears and number 12 makes a crack about, uh, oh dear, we're in trouble with the headmaster. <laughs> Which again foreshadows some of the things that might occur in Once Upon a Time. Mm. And for some extra foreshadowing, uh, number 12 says, oh, it must be confusing for it, not knowing which one of us to bite. Mm. He's kind of foreshadowing his own fate, really. Yeah. What's going to happen later. But Rover shuffles them both off in the direction of the Green Dome. I am the original. He is the economy pack. So they're both ushered in to see number two. And number two refers to number six as number six, even though he's pretending he's number 12, because they're now pretending that they're trying to convince number 12 as six that he isn't number six. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's an accurate summary of what happens. It, it does get very confusing. I think, I think we should think of a better annotation for how we're doing this but we'll stick with it for now yeah so number 12 in the white jacket is put through some kind of experimental test where they're beaming a circle of light onto his forehead and interrogating Mm. him saying you know who sent you how did you get here did your people produce you that they're interrogating him as if he were the imposter imposter even though he is but under the pretense of doing this to the real number six to make him break, even though everyone in the room would be aware that he's not. It's just, it's mind-bending at this point. Yeah, and number 12 is, he's doing a very good performance of somebody who is convinced that he is number six as well. Uh, Because he he is there to make the real number six believe that he is an imposter who can be found out. I suppose. And it's these moments where, as you were saying earlier, he really channels the grit and the confidence of a genuine number six, his resilience and his desire to uh, fight back against the questioning, which number two uh, is levelling at him. And there's that bit where he shouts that he is number six, six, six. Mm -hmm. And not to labour it, but I think this ties back to those sort of pseudo-religious things about the double being referred to in the context of what the devil, good heavens, you know, people stealing people's souls. Uh, It's interesting that they use six in that context again. And to go back to the once upon a time kind of references and some of the dialogue that occurs in that episode, again, it's not a spoiler, the insistence that he is six by calling out his number 
is something which occurs in that episode as well. But I don't really want to talk any more about why that happens. Mm. So number 12 in the white jacket faints or appears to faint. It could all be an act. We don't know. From the interrogation. And they pick him back up again. And number two says that your mind can lie, but your body can't. Yes. And I think this is... It's an important foreshadowing plot point for the end, and we'll get to that later on. But it's interesting that given that so many village experiments are to do with uh, experiments on the mind, mind control, trying to understand what people are thinking, what people are feeling, I think that's a very loaded choice of phrase here. And the fact that they are trying to dissociate Six mentally from his physical self um, by actually extracting his identity and making him physically question it by presenting him with a double of himself and saying, this is you, you or somebody else. We are cracking that double. And by inference, we are actually cracking you, although that's not something that Six has necessarily cottoned onto. Yeah, it's just very mind-bending how they're how they're trying to manipulate his uh, his belief in his own identity in the in the cruelest possible way. <laughs> yeah, and they're they're going to check it by testing number twelve in the white jacket. It's the mm. only way I can keep track of which one it is. Testing his fingerprints, and they've got an image of the real number six's finger well, thumbprint, I guess it is, upon a projection screen. And this pedestal rises up out of the floor with a shining disc in it that you can press your thumb on and it will project the fingerprint up on the screen. Which is not one of the buttons that uh, Six found at the end of Free For All. It's like (laughs) he was pressing all the different buttons. But on how many occasions do you need to take and project someone's fingerprints that you have a specific gizmo that only does that built into the floor of your lair so that you can press a button and it rises up for this is a gadget that nobody needs it's just incredible what else is under there i want i want to press every button in that control room and just see what completely insane gadgets they have built into that place on the off chance that Oh, you know what we need to do today? We need to project someone's thumbprint onto the wall. Mm. That's what we've got to do. Oh, it's okay. There's a gadget for that. And yet when Six did it at the end of Free For All, he could only operate sort of chairs going up and down. <laughs> you know, so I, yeah. I love the fact that in a way it also does imply that the village has, they have literally thought of everything. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how idiosyncratic some of these tools might be, for village purposes, they have a button that will produce what you need on demand. <laughs> And it's not even a utilitarian gadget. It's really sleek and round and glowing in the middle. And it, it looks really cool. They can't have their thumbprint scanner projector without making it look really cool in, <laughs> in number two's lair. So they get 12 in the white jacket, who's pretending to be six, to put his thumb on the circle. And the print gets projected up on the wall next to the real print of number six to show that it's different and number two states that this is proof that number six is not number six number six being 12 but they're trying to convince the real six that he is six sorry that the one in the white jacket is six but then that means that 
12 in the white jacket then rejects this on the basis that science can be manipulated. Um, and so he's not going to accept that just because his fingerprints look different, that that means that he's not number six. Mm. And six also says that he trusts human instinct and therefore because this idea of uh, science being perverted, which is essentially what may be going on in some of the weird experiments happening in the village, he believes that the only way to resolve this is to uh, have a, a human rather than a machine decide who is the real number six. So then we call back to the beginning of the episode where Six says the best way that he can um, prove that he is the real number six and discredit number 12 uh, is to bring in Alison, with whom he has this potential uh, psychological rapport whereby he can look at the Xenocards and Alison is able to uh, predict using potentially her ESP skills uh, to determine what's on the cards. And by using this test, he believes that he can show number two and number 12 as number six, that he is the real six, even though he's doing it more as a ruse to crack number 12. So Alison appears, and this is another occasion where a village resident has a name as well as a number. And every other time that's happened, the person has turned out to be not entirely trustworthy. Happened with Cobb, happened with Nadia. And it's one of those things where it's difficult to know exactly how much of a part she was playing, Alison, that is, in what was going on. Was she involved in it from the beginning, or have they told her that she now has to do this in the room to effectively break the rapport with the real number six, to have one with the fake number six? Although how she would get the rapport with the fake number six, I don't know. Well, that's kind of revealed a little bit later on in the episode when she talks about the underlying nature of how the uh, the mind control experiment might work she refers to coincidences and mm. and how it works i mean my feeling about this is that she was planted into six's world to gain his trust and i'm not sure if she knew what the ultimate end game was when she started like i'm not sure for example that she knew about the ploy to introduce the double in the form of number 12 but you can almost see a situation where she was brought in to infiltrate his life, gain his trust. And then as the real machinations of this plot unravel, she then gets asked to do more things uh, aligned with what the villagers plan is. Because I think she she is somebody who's out there to work on the side of the village. But I think she's unaware of the extent of the damage she's doing until later because she does seem surprised to see them both yeah when she walks into the room but a lot of village characters are very good at acting surprise we've already seen moments where was it chimes of big ben where we see characters who are meant to be in london (laughs) act surprised about the fact that six is returning even though he's not actually going back to london he's going to a a staged area in the village. Hmm. Um, so so they are very good at coaching these people. And we've already had people in this episode who are potentially claiming that the six that they're seeing is actually number 12 at hmm. the very beginning. I, mean, I don't think she's the kind of character who is as manipulative as the real village overlords here. But I think she is being played as much as anyone else. But she's there to 
enhance the feeling that this is a real event that's happening for number six. She is there to convince six, firstly, that she has this mind control ability and that that can be then used against the real six when they need to invoke this specific test. Because she knows maybe that six is going to use her to validate who is six and who is twelve. And she is exploiting that in a way by going for the cards which are read out by 12 as 6 rather than 6 as 12. Hmm. But when the real 6 is doing the first set of cards with her, Hmm. and at first, you you see number 2 standing behind him, and at first number 2 looks a little bit perturbed, but once she starts getting them wrong, Hmm. you see him relax and start to look rather smug that this is evidently going the way that he wanted, Hmm. that she's getting the cards wrong with the real number six. But whenever number six turns around to pick up a new card, Hmm. he changes his expression to one of concern Hmm. because he has to keep up the pretense that this is actually going very badly for him because Hmm. they're trying to convince the other guy Hmm. that he's number six. And then whenever he's not looking again, he looks very smug again. Yeah. Um, And when the whole thing plays out, in the way that he wanted, with her getting the cards right with the fake number six. Mm. He he keeps up this pretense that this is a terrible outcome. But whenever no one's looking, you can see that he's actually thinking, yes, good, this is it's all going according to plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, one other reading of this, and again, I, I'm just coming up with this now. Is there an element, and this is, uh, yeah, this could completely be wrong, um, but if there was a situation where Alison does have some psychic rapport with number six. Is that in some way broken by the experiments that they've done on number six? Mm. So therefore, although, well, because, you know, I don't think her, her motives are wholly good in the episode, but she may also have been convinced of this ability because it's clear that they experiment on everyone in the village. Mm. So if she's in some way been co-opted into working for them, could they have made her believe that she had this ability by having some mental link engineered uh, through some experiment between her and the real number six? But now that number six has undergone these uh, secret conditioning experiments, now that's actually broken. So therefore, she might be even slightly confused as to why it's it's not working mm. um, as well. And that maybe they've introduced that connection with the fake number six in order to mean that she believes that she does have a genuine psychic rapport with number six. But they have transferred that by whatever means the village has from real number six to fake number six, which is why it plays out like this. Mm. I think there's a a crucial line that Alison says when the fake number six takes the photograph out of his jacket Mm. and gives it to her. And of course, there would only be one copy of that because it was one of those instant cameras. And she then passes it to the real number six. She says, I took this yesterday. Mm. But she must know that it wasn't yesterday. Yeah. Because she must know that time has passed, unless they drugged her as well or something. Yeah. She must know that that is itself a lie. Yeah, so I suppose that does speak to the fact that she is part of this ploy as well. But, but she could still have a genuine link with number six that yes. is then broken. 
yeah. So I think it's... I don't know. Maybe it's because I like the character of Alison. I don't want to think that she is uh, as treacherous as a number two in this kind of episode. But I think she's clearly on the on the wrong side. She is manipulating Six. She is aware of what she's doing, but she may not be fully aware of the bigger plan which is at play. Because I think towards the end, she does express some regret for what has taken place. But it doesn't come from a, a place of innocence. It comes from a place of, I didn't realise it would mm. get this far, almost. But but also, she passes the photograph to number six, doesn't she? The real number six. The real number six. Yeah. And she knows that he had bruised his thumb because he shows her when he says, oh, you know, injured for life. Yeah. She knows this. Is she deliberately giving him the photograph in order to give him a clue? Yeah, to tip him off so that eventually he can figure it out. So maybe she, yeah, is aware that at this point, maybe she doesn't like the way that this this is going. And she's trying to at least help number six in the only way that she knows that she can. So she regrets what, what's happened thus far. And she's hoping that maybe she can help this reach a, a resolution that helps six. Maybe she starts to realise that this is not a kind of manipulation that she wants to be involved in. Um, but yeah, she's a wonderfully, I mean, for, you know, uh, a relatively brief role, what I love is that she is so significant to so many different aspects when she's on screen and off it as well. And yeah, it's a it's a great performance by, uh, by Jane in this episode mm-hmm. uh, to sort of portray these many different sides to... Uh, to this character and then she makes the point about the real number six having a mole on his wrist at which point they reveal that the fake number six has presumably had a fake mole put on mm. and the real number six looks at his own wrist and his has been removed which is what we saw earlier on in the episode yeah so while the fake number six and allison head off together number two starts calling up one of the white-coated minions one of the scientists to uh, complain about the fact that there was no mole. Uh, there, there, there is no mole. Look at it, Parks and Rec. <laughs> there is no mole. <laughs> yeah, but it look, he's he's pretending that it was a disastrous thing for the real six to have done in the guise of him being twelve to attempt the mind reading trick. Left hand number twelve. Left hand. So then we return to number six, who is in number twelve's apartment, where he believes uh, he is number twelve, obviously, and he's having what seems like a nightmare as he's recalling some of the things which I think are subconsciously him remembering facets of what's been going on that are starting to make him realise that something has been happening to him to change his subconscious to believe that he is no longer number six. So we see these flashes of images. We have number two laughing. We have number 12 as number six kind of maniacally laughing and mocking him as well. There's a reference to number 24 as well in that same sequence. And it's clear it's just really perturbing him. But again, this is all in his mind. It's all a dream. And when he wakes up, he looks at the calendar on his bedside table And it still says February 10th. 
Now, for the longest time, I always wondered, how can it still be hmm. February 10th when he's woken up? And I've literally just realised that it's one of those calendars with the little twizzly knobs that you have to change the date yourself. <laughs> he just hasn't changed it. <laughs> it's not a Groundhog Day thing. He just hasn't changed the calendar. Um, but yeah, it's also February 10th. And he notices that um, on his finger, the bruise is now halfway up the fingernail. Yeah, this is the one that occurred when uh, Alison knocked the bottle over and it hit his thumb. Mm. Yeah. So he scrambles around in the apartment for a magnifying glass and checks the photo that Alison passed him and sees that in the photo, where it says February 10th in the background, the bruise is right at the bottom of the nail. Um, and now it's halfway up. And the only way that can happen through the passage of time yeah so it can't possibly be one or two days on from when he got that bruise it has to be a much longer period of time yeah so even in spite of all this conditioning and all these experiments which must be ongoing it wasn't like a one-off thing and then he's left to be number 12 they must continually be doing this it's interesting that uh he's such a strong character that he is always aware that innately something is wrong and that he is the real number six, which causes him to be so stubborn in his desire to work out exactly what's going on. And this is where he's starting to put the pieces together about the passage of time that's taken place. And again, he must be kind of sick of this, but he knows that every time he goes to sleep, the village keep doing experiments on him. <laughs> yeah, and he it's as if having something that is concrete that he can hold on to and say, I know that the facts being presented to me cannot be true, unlocks something in his mind. And he he looks in the mirror and he remembers seeing himself looking back with a very heavily grown beard and moustache. And he starts to remember the conditioning that was done to him, the conditioning to make him left-handed, of uh, prodding him and throwing electrocuted items at him while his left hand had a, a glove on that would protect him yeah. bringing him food until he refused to eat anything that wasn't the flapjacks mm. Do, doing some kind of experiment where they've got things attached to his head and he's mumbling I am number 12 I, flapjacks are my favourite food mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it, it all starts coming back to him now now that now that something has unlocked in his mind that makes him certain that yes he is number six flapjacks are my favorite dish flapjacks favorite dish yeah and as he's looking in the mirror you see not only his face change but his whole demeanor changes i mm. think at this point like you say he realizes that something is up he looks around in number 12's flap which is in and maybe he's always known it's not the right place, but he, you know, because he, he is searching for things in that place. He doesn't know where things are. Mm. Um, whereas he would if that was the place where he actually lived. He finds the white cigarettes, which are the ones that he felt he should smoke, but didn't smoke because he was told to smoke black cigarettes. He looks at a white cigarette um, and he kind of crumbles it away. And then he looks for a cigar. And the cigar, so this, but I, I don't fully get, but he, he opens it up and there's what looks like a wire inside. Mm. In any other episode, I would say this was a bug or something like that. I don't really know. I don't know why there's a wire inside a cigar. I do wonder if it's related to the fact that, you know, when he first smoked it, he 
was kind of coughing, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if they put something in them to make him react react negatively to them, so he is conditioned even when he's trying to smoke a cigar, so that he doesn't he doesn't uh, enjoy it and can't and and can't smoke it properly. Yeah, and then he sits down in a chair and. So almost without thinking, he takes a black cigarette out of a box with his left hand and is about to smoke it until he starts to realise that this isn't right. Mm. Again, he's he's coming around from his conditioning. He he knows that this thing that he's instinctively done is not really what he would do. And then, and the light starts to flash as well. Mm. There's a table lamp next to him which starts to flash and you hear a bit of static crackling. And then this wonderful moment where he decides that the way to recover his identity and get back to being himself mm. is to deliberately electrocute himself yeah so he holds on to the holds on to um what looks like a you know a pipe on the wall and also he uh grabs the lamp near the near the light bulb fitting as well and uh i suppose with the electrotherapy which is used to condition him to uh behave and think he's number 12 he realizes that he can potentially reverse this by electrocuting himself which he does so uh there's a big loud zap and he receives an uh, electric shock uh he stumbles around uh on the ground for a second and then as he comes to which doesn't take very long to be <laughs> honest uh, given that he's been electrocuted is that he knocks he knocks a, a box off the off a side table yeah and he catches it with his right hand and he looks at it in a kind of knowing kind of fashion i love this bit and then he throws it several times up and down in his right hand and he realizes he has the use of his right hand back as his dominant hand implying that he is now returned to being number six as himself he's he's undone a lot of the conditioning which has taken place yeah, and I want to know how many takes they had to do of him knocking the box off the table, catching it, and then flipping the box perfectly <laughs> in his hand without dropping it. Because <laughs> I could not have done that first time, or probably 100th time. <laughs> so now I think we're going to go into one of our mini tangents again. Mm. Um, as listeners of the podcast know, we are big fans of the TV show Twin Peaks. And we obviously have our Twin Peaks podcast, Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. And during our episodes about The Prisoner, we do like to occasionally delve into moments which we think are not sort of directly the inspirations for bits in Twin Peaks, but they, they remind us of uh, wonderful things that happen in that show, even though that took place sort of 25 years afterwards, or more recently, 50 years afterwards as well, after the revival of Twin Peaks yeah. uh, last year. And of course, Mark Frost, the co-creator and co-writer of Twin Peaks, is a huge fan of The Prisoner. I think he, he recently said that he felt it was the greatest show of all time. Yeah, so we do um, like the fact that it intersects with a lot of our interests when we can find these uh, these links between both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks. Um, that was also the basis of our interview with uh, Chris Rodley in our previous episodes, um, which you can find by subscribing to the podcast. But this whole sequence here, I think this is straight out of uh, season three of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Because, and again, there are spoilers for Twin Peaks here, and you may find this incredibly dull if you don't like Twin Peaks, but to <laughs> us it was remarkable when we first noticed this. Yeah, so if you haven't seen season three of Twin Peaks, otherwise known as Twin Peaks The Return, yet, 
but you want to see it and you want to see it spoiler free, skip over the next five minutes because we're about to talk about some stuff that happened that's very important in the recent revival, season three, Twin Peaks The Return. So uh, yeah, this is your final spoiler warning. Uh, Consider the red lights flashing because we're (laughs) about to talk about it. So the character of Dale Cooper has been trapped within another body resembling him, a character called uh, Dougie, for most of season three of Twin Peaks, which was the revival series that came out last year. And it seems like for the majority of the series, the character of Dale Cooper, who is this uh, assertive FBI agent, has been trapped within the shell of this quiet, confused character called Dougie for the whole uh, series um, up until near the end. And all the viewers were waiting for him to break out of this shell. They were waiting for some trigger that would result in uh, Cooper emerging from this from this cocoon that he was in and return to his former self. And what's interesting is I think it's part 16 of Twin Peaks, uh, The Return, which is the episode where Cooper, who was trapped in Dougie form, is eating a slice of cake watching TV. And then he sees on TV uh, that they're showing... Um, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. And they reference the character of Gordon Cole. And Gordon Cole is also a character in Twin Peaks, who's played by David Lynch, who is Dale Cooper's boss. So apologies if you don't like Twin Peaks. This is making no sense at all. Um, (laughs) But when he hears the name Gordon Cole in Sunset Boulevard, it reminds the inner Dale Cooper of his former boss, Gordon Cole, at the FBI. And he sort of comes to in that moment. He's still trapped within within this cocoon. But he, he knows that he knows that his life is not right, that yeah. there's something wrong with the reality with which he is presented. Yeah, so what he does is he is eating this cake with a fork and he very ominously looks at his fork and then he looks at an electrical socket. <laughs> um, and there's kind of this cut back and forth and you know what's going to happen next. But what he does is he gets down on all fours, he crawls towards the electrical socket and the way that he returns to his original self by sort of revealing the reality of his life to himself and breaking out of this cocoon is he electrocutes himself and there's a huge buzz and he kind of collapses on the floor. But that's the moment which is what reawakens Dale Cooper from the state of being trapped in this other form who notably looks the same as him and has uh, sort of a, you know, he's completely restricted in what he can do and what he can say. But but now this is the moment that is used by Cooper to revert back to his normal self. And I think watching this scene in Schizoid Man, um, I mean, I think this is a, I mean, it's, it's a direct corollary of that scene, is it not? Especially when you've got, other smaller references in here like staring into a mirror and an unfamiliar face starts looking back at you the moment where the the light flickers and you hear the static electricity sound crackling and also the fact that now he's going to go off and confront his evil doppelganger i mean it's (laughs) it's this was the first time that we had sat down and watched Kitsoid man since twin peaks came back last year 
And we just looked at each other after that scene and we're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Because it, 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 everything in that scene was just shouting. Yeah. Twin Peaks at us. Yeah. A character who's facing off against his doppelganger. I mean, that is the root of what Twin Peaks The Return was really about. But in this case, the specific details, uh, as we've discussed, are, you know, really like for like between the return of Dale Cooper to his real self. So thinking he is somebody somebody else potentially and then breaking out of that and using uh, electrocution as a means to revert to his normal self i just love the fact that that happens in uh, in both shows so yeah if ever there was a reason why we think that fans of twin peaks might be really interested in watching the prisoner um not only is the prisoner as uh, cerebral a, a show as as wonderfully well made and as groundbreaking as twin peaks but there are some lovely little nods that you can find within The Prisoner, intentional or not, that I think um, will be a, a really rewarding viewing experience for people who watch both The Prisoner and Twin Peaks and are looking for more of the same. So back in the Green Dome, uh, number two is getting a massage from the butler. Um, <laughs> and he's looking up at the screen, which sort of overlooks all the different things that are going on in the village and he's checking on number six who should be in number 12's flat and he realizes he's not there so he gets a bit concerned thinking where has number six as number 12 gone we then realize that number six is uh, wandered out he's on a mission now i think basically to work out what's going on he's going to confront uh, number 12 who has taken over his existence as number six and as he's walking through the village, he meets a couple of standard issue village goons. <laughs> uh, cryptically, he says the atmosphere is very different here from what it was elsewhere, which I don't really understand. It sounds a bit like one of those strange spy coded message, you know, like, uh, you know, the eagle flies at midnight, that kind of business. Yeah, I, I don't he, really know what it's about. Uh, he has a bit of a smirk when he says it as well, yeah. which I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what that's meant to mean. <laughs> And they ask number six, as number 12, what the password is. And number six replies, Gemini. Or well, as <laughs> or as Magoon pronounces it, Gemini, for some yeah. reason. Why does he say that? Fair enough. Maybe there wasn't time to take that again. Um, and the goons do not react fondly to this. Uh, clearly, it's not the right password, or indeed a password that indicates that this is number six rather than number 12, pretending to be number six. The obligatory prisoner fisticuff scene takes place. <laughs> um, there's always one of these scenes, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a fight scene that takes place, uh, probably just to appease the ITC uh, viewership in some way. Probably Lou Grade saying we need at least, you know, two minutes of uh, a bit of a fight uh, with uh, number six getting a kicking. Yeah, um, and that the the fight chase sequence music cranks up as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Six is fine at the end of it. He gets away and we hear the roar of Rover appearing. And Six does actually something quite interesting here. What he does is seeing Rover, he, he sees a mini moke as well. And he gets into the mini moke, starts driving it. And as Rover starts to chase it, he then jumps out and he hides and he watches Rover follow the mini moke. So therefore that's a, a clever way to misdirect Rover and get it following in the wrong direction. Yeah. And number two is still concerned that they can't find number six on any of the security cameras. And he calls the supervisor, 
who says that there's no trace in anywhere that they've looked of number six anywhere. Yeah. So now we know that six is a little bit off the radar and uh, he's off to find number 12, who has taken over his existence as number six. Sometimes in my dreams, I resign my job. Why did you resign your job in your dream? So Six goes to his own house to confront Twelve. (laughs) And Twelve is lying on the bed with a gun that allegedly shoots nerve gas. (laughs) Where would he have nerve gas from in the village? I think in the current climate, uh, there are some obvious places that might be producing nerve gas. (laughs) (laughs) And like we always say, this show is way ahead of its time. (laughs) Um, and, And... Six now fakes confusion. He's now pretending to be a confused version of himself who thinks he might be 12. Yeah, and he's done this thing before where he pretends he's confused. I think the last time was probably A, B and C, wasn't it? So just before he has the C treatment, Mm. he pretends to pass out so he gets taken away and he pretends that he is under the influence of the special drugs the village has given him in order to manipulate his dream so then he can turn the tables on number two, Colin Gordon, in that episode. Yeah. And he tempts number 12 with the ultimate snippet of information, which is why he resigned. He says, I have dreams when I'm someone else. In my dreams, I resign my job. You can see 12 in that instant thinking, maybe this is the moment I'm actually going to get the information they want. But also, this is a nice return of six to being the really sharp game player in this whole thing he's he now is in control again and maybe he hasn't been in control as much during the episode and he's able to start playing games with the village as well by teasing them with information that he knows that they will want as a means to lull them into a a sense of complacency which he often exploits Mm. number six in pretending to be confused says i want to know who am i Mm. and Going back to the first encounter between 6 and 12, when 12 is pretending to be 6 being confronted with a doppelganger, he says, oh, are you expecting me to you know, run off screaming, who am I? <laughs> and now 6 is effectively feeding the very line that they want from him by actually saying, who am I? Hmm. Just as number 12 is beginning to buy it enough that he's going to call number 2, uh, fight number two <laughs> and the fight music kicks up there's a bit of a scrap in uh, number six's flat yeah. and uh, it ends with uh, the real number six getting the upper hand it must uh, be quite convenient when you can fight with your own stuntman in order for there to be two of you <laughs> I assume that's what they're doing yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah he gets the fake number six or rather the real number twelve to reveal that his name is Curtis not Charlie, which you might have suspected from the Flapjack Charlie comic. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, his name is Curtis. What he does is he asks for the actual password. So he now knows from his bad experience with the village goons earlier on that Gemini is not the right password. He was given a fake password as a means for the village to know if ever Six realised what was going on and wanted to outplay them he would use a fake password rather than a real one he now has schizoid man as a real password which which, to be honest curtis gives up quite easily Hmm. with that information he then takes the fake mole off curtis's 
arms. I think, I think now we'll call him Curtis now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he puts it on his own, which is weird because it would have been a real mole. So just sticking a mole back on is A, a bit weird <laughs> and B, a bit nasty as well. <laughs> <laughs> and they go outside to, I think, what, make a break for number twos, probably. Mm. But then Rover appears. Going back to when they came out of the recreation room earlier and Rover appeared when both of them were there and Curtis, number 12, made that crack about um, it not knowing which one of us to bite. Hmm. It must be very confusing for it. It now seems confused and it really doesn't know which one to bite because they're all on orange alert. Um, number two has told the supervisor to launch orange alert so Rover is out and about looking to potentially kill somebody yeah but also i've just realized as well it's another moment where it implies that rover is sentient as well mm, yeah because it's confused it is confused it can't tell so it must be able to process this information itself so there is a lot more to rover than we will ever find out mm. number six gives the password to get soy man and number 12 then immediately afterwards also gives the password to get soy man but rover attacks number 12 yeah he says it twice doesn't he he says schizoid man Schizoid man. Well, I think he realises that Rover is turning towards him, mm. uh, him being Curtis, and so he thinks by saying it again, he will, you know, he'll he'll convince Rover. But that doesn't work, and Rover sort of backs Curtis into a corner, and then we see the uh, standard Rover compressing <laughs> Curtis against a wall. You see his face, uh, Curtis's face, pressed up against the ru- uh, the rubber. I presume as he's suffocated or absorbed into rover in some way uh leaving number six free now here i'm a bit confused i know it's a very you know, it's a very mind-bending kind of episode but i'm still kind of interested in how rover was able to tell the difference between real number six and curtis as number six if the only thing they had was the password which was schizoid man because that does seem to work it, that that seems to be something that Rover is able to use. Maybe it's been programmed to respond appropriately. Um, it knows that Schizoid Man is a password, so when Six uses it, it then turns to Curtis, and Curtis says it. I mean, do you think it's just the fact that Curtis says it the second time, uh, so after Six has said it, that it's believed that it's copying something, so therefore Curtis is the fake? Yeah, it, it could be that it responds to number six saying the password first, and that its response is that if someone says the password to me, they are the real one, or rather they are Curtis, the real 12, yeah. not the real 6, then they are not the one that I should attack, therefore I should attack the other one, because by process of elimination, they must be 6, even if they're also saying the password afterwards. Yeah. So it, it could just be that 6 gets the password in first. There's also that point earlier in the episode when 2 is performing those tests on 12, trying to convince the real 6 that they are working to break 12, who is pretending to be 6. And he says something along the lines of being separated in mind and body. I can't remember what the exact line is. But do you think that now 6 has undone the conditioning, he is now fully number 6? Uh, he has no longer got any part of him which doubts that he himself is number six. And therefore, there is something about him being a complete person that means that that is sensed by Rover. So when he says the password, he is deemed to be a 
real person, mm. not somebody who's under any kind of manipulation anymore, which I presume would have been the status of Six whilst he was being manipulated into thinking he was number 12. Mm. The The only other explanation I can come up with, and this is a bit wacky, as to why Rover attacks Curtis, mm. is... Uh, so you remember back in Arrival where the, the plot to break out involved having an electro pass that would allow someone to go past Rover and into the helicopter? Yes, the one that Cobb's wife gave him. Yeah, yep. so it was evidently some gadget or gizmo or something inside the watch that Rover responded to as being this person is safe hmm. to go past. Now... This is this is a bit extreme, but in the previous scene, we saw number six remove the fake mole from Curtis and yeah. put it on himself. Could the mole be a mini electro pass? Could it be something in the mole that is registering with Rover as this is the person I am not supposed to attack? That is a quite disgusting, but. Also quite plausible uh, explanation. <laughs> it's a bit weird that they would do that, but I wouldn't put anything above the villager hierarchy. I mean, I do... I mean, building on that, do you think it's... Is there a... I can't remember now, but did they ever take the electropass away from him? Uh, well, I suppose they... Well, I suppose it hasn't been used so far because if it was in the form of the watch still, it would have worked earlier on, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, when, when Rover confronts... Six and twelve outside the rec room. Yeah. And of course, at this point when Rover is trying to figure out which one of them is which, neither of them are wearing a badge because Curtis doesn't have his jacket on. Yeah. And Six never wears his badge. Yeah. So there's no... There can't be anything in that that's identifying who's who. Yeah. So now we're going to go with the theory that the mole is actually (laughs) an electropass that gets you past Rover. Well, you know, it's not the weirdest thing. Uh, uh, all the password might be more likely. Yeah, the password is more likely. If you <laughs> if you have any suggestions about how this scene is actually resolved, so how Rover is able to tell the difference between 6 and 12 in this scene, please do get in touch. You can email us via the website. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. We'd love to hear if you have any other theories about how that works or indeed if you agree with these theories and there's some some truth to what we're talking about yeah maybe it's maybe it's the use of the password being first maybe it's the mole maybe it's the complete form of number six after the electrocution yeah do write in and let us know we'd love to love to hear your thoughts on what might be going on in this episode with regard to this specific uh, plot point so now number six goes back inside he calls number two, pretending to be Curtis, gives the schizoid man password, tells him that number six is dead, much to his alarm, hmm. uh, and with a smirk, says Rover got him. Is that the first time anyone calls it Rover? Yeah, this is the first time that, that the word Rover is used. So we refer to it all the time as Rover from the very beginning, but I think this is the first time it's ever used. And, and interestingly, it's used by number six, so he must know what they're called. Hmm. Um and again, I know that there, you know, obviously the TV show is a snapshot of what's happening in the village, but it'd be really interesting if somehow, again, another wacky theory, if it, in his former life, Six was aware of Rover. 
hmm. in some way. And so therefore he knew what it was. Maybe through his secret government work, maybe he knew what a rover was. So therefore he knew um, what to refer to it as. What is also interesting here is this idea that Six is dead and the alarm that that uh, induces in two. Because the uh, number two here and in the previous few episodes has obviously had an aversion to doing anything that breaks number six in any way that damages him. So this does seem to be a way to really upset number two because he believes that the subject of these experiments might actually be dead. Hmm. But in reality, number six is busy switching his jacket, putting on the white jacket, and indeed putting on the badge. Which is something that only the fake six Curtis would actually do because the regular number six doesn't wear the badge most of the time. Yeah. So number six, pretending to be Curtis, goes to see number two, and they have a conversation about how everything went so wrong. And Six finds it difficult to navigate his way through this conversation without arousing to suspicion. Yeah. Because he's suddenly in uncharted territory. He doesn't have the knowledge that Curtis is supposed to have. And he keeps sort of saying the wrong thing. And you can see that Two is a bit suspicious about what's happening. And in his desperation, he knows that he can probably taste a route out of the village for the Mm -hmm. first time. I mean, this could be a genuine route out of the village because he believes that he may have done exactly what was necessary to eliminate, at least to the village, the existence of six within uh, within the village. And having served his purpose, he can now return to wherever Curtis or Number 12 came from. Mm -hmm. So it it will get him out of there and it might even reveal some of the... uh, some of the secrets behind the village as well. So I think that there's an element of desperation there as well. He wants out, but he is not as calm and collected as he usually would be because, like you say, he doesn't have the right answers and he's not completely sure if number two is onto him. Mm. But number two tells him to go and talk to number 24 in the hope that she has some insight into number six's mind. And number 24 is at home uh, where she's picking up a book on the table called The Mind Reader. <laughs> um and when Six as Curtis comes in, Alison is initially quite hostile to him. She's clearly not happy with everything that she's had to do. Yeah, which again, I think shows that she wasn't completely malicious in what she was doing, but she knew that what she was doing was wrong. Mm. <laughs> you know, so she was, she must have known that the, uh, that whether she was roped into it early on or late, she didn't like what she had to do to number six because she must have built up some sense of friendship with him whilst doing all of these fake tests to uh, develop this ESP kind of trick that they were planning to do. Mm. And I wonder if she realises the extent of the damage that she has been involved in that she may not have been fully aware of when she first uh, got roped into it. Yeah, and Six, pretending to be Curtis, asks her about this mind-reading stuff, you know, when you're supposed to be able to read each other's minds, and she explains that it doesn't work that way. It's more like a series of small coincidences Hmm. that keep happening. And at that very moment, just as she picks up a cigarette, number Six is playing with a lighter and turns around and lights it for her (laughs) without even looking or thinking. And their eyes meet, and you can see in that moment mm. that she 
realises this is actually number six. Yeah, and maybe that's where some of the regret starts to stem for her because she knows obviously what she's done and actually now she's probably realising that number six may have actually played everyone and be on his way out of here. And I think she's not sure what to do because it's not like she suddenly goes and alerts number two or anyone uh, higher in the village hierarchy. She's probably thinking that this uh, is something which has happened that she probably wishes she didn't know because she might then get in trouble for it as well. Mm. And he tries to pass it off as him playing with the lighter. He jokes, I'll probably set a fire one day. (laughs) But you can tell that she isn't buying it. Yeah, She now knows who he is. Uh, But he heads home and prepares to pack. He gets changed into what must have been Curtis's suit that he arrived in. Mm. Finds a a wallet in the pocket with a photo signed, Your Loving Wife, Susan, which is the Susan who uh, number two must have been referring to and talking about him growing a moustache in Bucharest. And he's on his way out and he gets into a mini moke with number two in order to go to the helicopter. And it's not the usual helicopter that they use. Which is interesting because it's clear that the one that they are using uh, in previous episodes, I don't know what the type of helicopter it is, is but um, that seems to be one that literally just does round trips where they deliberately want to <laughs> lift somebody up, make them think they've gone somewhere and bring them back. This looks like a helicopter which is different. It's completely black and I presume it's one which they use uh, in order to get people to and from the village from external locations. And I think they say that the helicopter will take him to another landing area and a jet will take him from there onwards. So the implication is that the village is very isolated, at least by air from other places. But again, this is not the end of the story because we know that this is all part of a a ruse uh, on behalf of uh, number two. Yeah, so number six once again finds it difficult to hold a conversation with number two while pretending to be Curtis. Uh, Number two makes a reference to the general isn't going to behead you. And six says, well, we won't know till I report to the general. And two responds with, oh, report to a general. That's the, that's the new that's the new one. And so is this the general that is going to be in the episode that we haven't done yet, the general? Yeah, I think it probably is. Um, there's two ways of looking at it, because people of varying military ranks appear throughout the series. Mm. Um, there are multiple colonels, admirals, generals, all kinds of things. This comment is very telling. We won't go into it now, but I think is the general the next one? I think it might be. I think it is next, yeah. Um, For reasons that we won't go into now, but you can find out about in a couple of weeks, I think the implication that uh, number six can report directly to the general is what also flags uh, to number two, that there is something innately wrong about six's or, well, uh, Curtis's understanding of how the interactions with the general might work. Mm. And when number two makes a reference to Susan saying something a month ago, and number six, as Curtis fails to challenge this, Mm. I think at this point, number two must know that this isn't Curtis. Yeah, and as he sends number six to the helicopter, uh, he goes and speaks to somebody first. And I wonder if that's the moment where he's telling uh, the pilot or somebody who can pass the message on to the pilot that he suspects that the guy who's about to get in the helicopter is not the Curtis uh, that they thought. This is actually number six. 
So be prepared to uh, play along for a little bit, but then bring him back. Yeah. And meanwhile, number 24, Alison, is there waiting and gives this very coded apology because she can't be seen to be actually apologising to number six in front of everyone because they'll have to think it's Curtis. So she basically is able to say it in a way that is an apology Mm. while maintaining the pretense that she's talking to Curtis by saying, uh, you know, I I want you to know that I wouldn't do what I did again Mm. um, if if you asked me to do it again, basically. Yeah, I think it's it shows it shows a lot about number 24's character here. She was caught up in something much bigger than I think she originally thought. And she's genuinely remorseful for what's happened. And I think in a strange way, I'm sure this would never have happened, but it would have been really cool to have number 24 reappear in the series. Because I think this arc could have been quite interesting to have a character like 24 having this type of interaction with number six as a longer term thing in the series, as a confidant in some way, or somebody who was a link between the world of the village hierarchy and the village who kind of was a bit ambiguous in in which side they were actually on and also where their allegiances actually lay. And whatever friendship she struck up with number six, whether it was prompted from the beginning or whether she was only dragged into double-crossing him later on, that friendship must have been important enough that she felt the need to actually go and do this, to say something to him before he left, um, which you wouldn't do if someone wasn't important to you. Hmm. So the episode ends as uh, number six is blindfolded and taken up in the helicopter to return back home, maybe to the homeland, which is referenced in Free For All, I don't know. And indeed, uh, to give Susan number two's regards, <laughs> yeah. as he's asked to do. <laughs> the helicopter takes off, and promptly it is returned, and Six is manhandled out of the helicopter as two goons take off his uh, blindfold. Number two waiting for him, and reveals that Susan died a year ago. And this was indeed the thing that revealed definitively to two that uh, the person in front of him was six and was not Curtis. Mm. And with that, there's the look on six's face of having been foiled, um, (laughs) although having almost managed to uh, escape the village. And it's interesting. There's no moment of him walking off into the distance or anything else. There's just the look of abject failure, I think, in his face because he knows he got so close And we know that this time, at least, the village almost let him get away. But instead, they managed to uh, figure out what happened and bring number six back to the village. I think if A, B and C was a win for number six and Free For All was a win for the village, I think this one is a score draw. Yeah. It shows that, you know, six really is a worthy adversary. And uh, the village are going to have to step up their game if they're going to break him. And indeed, Six is going to have to do even more to outplay them. The atmosphere is very different here from what it was elsewhere. So we'd like to thank you once again for joining us as we have discussed and dissected the episode The Schizoid Man of The Prisoner. 
it's a wonderful episode, a favourite of ours. It was great to kind of go through it. And even as we are watching it in preparation for recording the podcast, it's remarkable how many new things you notice and how wonderful this episode is. I mean, it's it's so intricately plotted. There are so many twists and turns and it really is a gripping episode uh, of the show. And as we mentioned earlier, we were very lucky to have a conversation recently with Jane Merrow, who played Alison, number 24. We talked to her about her experience working on The Prisoner, working with Patrick McGowan, and also she had a really very long career in film, television, and on stage in both the UK and the US. She appeared in so many shows in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and recently she's been doing some really interesting independent short filmmaking. So we'd like to bring you that interview now and hope you enjoy. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined by Jane Merrow, who memorably played number 24 in the episode with the prisoner, The Schizoid Man. Hi, Jane. Hi, Bex. How are you? Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. Now, around the time you worked on The Prisoner, you'd worked on a lot of uh, ITC shows that were on at that time, including several episodes of Danger Man. How much did you know about The Prisoner when you went into making it? Well, I knew about... um, I obviously knew because of Patrick and having done three shows with him. uh, I knew that he had created this new show um, and, and it was very innovative and very different. Um, there was a lot of talk about it, and I loved working with him. So when they asked me to do it, I said, yes, I would be delighted. Uh, my only disappointment was that I didn't get to go to Port Marion. Um, uh. But <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I was thrilled when they asked me to do it, and, and particularly because it was such a great part. Um, I'm, you know, Patrick had some difficulty with actresses, I think. He, he didn't. I don't know, I think didn't really improve of us as a breed. <laughs> and I'd heard, before I started working with him, everyone said, oh, do beware, he's very difficult and he doesn't like actresses and everything. Well, he and I got on like a house on fire. I think um, I, I really, really loved working with him. He's, he's one of the, the best actors I've ever worked with. Um, and um, because I think we were on the same wavelength in terms of um, energy and preparedness and professionalism and everything, we, we really got on very well. So um, that worked particularly well for, for the prisoner because, I, you know, the character I played had a mind-reading act with him. I mean, that was quite a challenge because... I had to remember all these things, and then when Patrick got going, you know, when he really gets going, the, the energy and, and, the, and the, the drive that is there sort of really keeps you on your toes, and I had to be ready with answers and everything. But again, the relationship worked very, very well. And I think it was interesting because she played a character who basically who didn't, basically, she just betrayed him. Number 24 was an interesting character. Do you think that she realised that she was betraying number six? No, she did realise what she was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing. The people that ran the village, or number two, who the, the one in charge, um, had had basically got her into this by saying, we want you to, to play this trick on this man because we want to confuse him as to who he is. 
and they created this this clone of him. Um, and again, it was all about control. I think Patrick had this big thing about the sort of George Orwell 1984 thing, <clears throat> where where civilization sort of has gone into a, a place where you know people are just you know puppets, and and just a very few people at the top are in control. And that's where he found himself and being um, a man of, of, of individuality and, and, and wanting to be free while he was always trying to escape. And they were trying to get control of him. So they they, they sort of pulled her into it to um, working against him. But at the end, I think she was very sorry about it, which is why she said she wouldn't have done it again. When you went into working on The Prisoner, did it feel like it was something very special at the time? Yes, it did. I mean, none of us really understood the whole thing. Um, and um, we, knew it was, we knew it was something special. But because so much of it came from inside Patrick's own head and mind, and, and the writing, a lot of it came from him, and the ideas and everything, um, we didn't quite understand what the whole concept was about. But I didn't care. I mean, you know, unless you're given a script which is so awful and so ghastly that you you think, why am I doing this? If you get a decent part in a decent show, you just get on and do it. And and that's how it was with the prisoner. How do you how do you find it now when you know after fifty years the show is still so popular and you're still being asked about it? I think it's astonishing, but I think it's a credit to it's it's quality that the show has survived and that it still has a huge fan following. Um, and, and and I think also it's a very timeless subject. It's the same reason I keep coming back to 1984, partly because I did the television show of 1984 back in, um, in the 60s. So I, I read the book and got into it very well. And The Prisoner is basically along the same lines, uh, you know, about society controlling us and I think maybe Patrick had some of that in his head when he did it I don't know because he didn't discuss it with people we we used to say this Patrick so what's all this about Patrick what's it about he said I don't know <laughs> but he was just he was just playing with us I think of course he knew what he was trying to say but um he, he liked to sort of play that that bit of a mystery man in, in, in about the show but I'm not surprised that it, it survived so well. And, um, you know, all, all of the, <clears throat> the village and the costumes and everything look quite futuristic anyway, so it hasn't really dated in, in some way. You said that all the work that you did on The Prisoner was filmed in the studio and you didn't get to go to Port Marion. Yeah. Um, it's, it's remarkable watching it because even that scene at the end where she, as she says to number six that she wouldn't do it again um, as he's leaving... And that's, it looks completely external. You know, watching it, well, you would think that that had been filmed in Port Marion. I couldn't agree more, but it was actually done on the back lot of, of the MGM studios in Elstree. <laughs> <laughs> Besides the helicopter. Uh, but it did, it did, I mean, it was a beautifully uh, produced and directed show. We had, I mean, Pat Jackson, who directed the one I did, was, was a wonderful director. Um, we were very lucky in those days because what had happened, the film industry at that time has sort of 
started to fall apart a bit as television made its mark and came in, in into being and, and people were staying home and watching television much more. So what happened is we had a huge, not a huge, but we had a good influx of incredibly talented and skilled film directors who weren't getting the work that they should have done. Um, so they were turning to doing television and they were doing shows like this. Um, one of Patrick's favorite directors who I worked with on, on uh, Danger Man was Don Chaffee. And Don has had a great career in film. And the same thing with Les Norman, who I think directed some of the, you know, some of the wonderful English films that were made back in the 50s. And, you know, these, these guys suddenly had nowhere to go, really, but television. And we had the benefit of that. So when you were working on a lot of those ITC shows at the time, um, I know you were in Man in a Suitcase, Danger Man, The Avengers, uh, and uh, Run and Hot Critics East as well. Yeah. Uh, was it almost like a, a sort of a little family with, with so many people working on all these shows? Well, it began to feel like it, yes. I mean, I, I, again, I was very lucky. Um, I'd been doing a lot of, of wonderful television stuff for the BBC, you know, really great plays and so on. And um, I'd done a couple of, of nice films, and one, one in particular, which was The System. And um, then these, these uh, episode, uh, episodic television started to make a real appearance. And it was all on film, and it was 35mm film, so the quality was, it was terrific. Mm. Um, and I was a casting director came out of the blue, a, a wonderful, uh, she was an American called Rose Tobias Shaw, and she was in charge of the casting for all these shows. And I suddenly got a call and said, you know, would you be interested in, in, in doing one of them? And that was the first Danger Man I did, and we're still on black and white. And I said, yes, you know, read the script. What, great. You know, it wasn't quite um, David Mercer doing um, the, 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 what was it? I'm trying to think of the name of the play that I did that was a David Mercer play, which was quite famous. Oh, A Suitable Case for Treatment, um, <clears throat> which was quite famous in its day. And it was a different kind of work. But this work was was good and and because we had such terrific leading men like Patrick and Roger Moore and um Pat McNee and people like that it was all it was all really exciting and and fun to do really good fun what made you initially want to go into acting as a career <laughs> i wanted to act from the age of about 5 i was a great show off <laughs> <laughs> and i liked to to get up in front of an audience and show off basically and I had family uh, in the theater. Um, my uncle, one of my uncles had been in the theater. My, my grandfather was the stage designer and buyer and, and, and manager for um, the St. Martin's Theater in London and was very much a theater man. So it was kind of in the blood. And, they, you know, when, when it's in the family, they, people talk about it a lot. It becomes part of your environment growing up. And uh, I thought, well, yes, I think I'd like to be an actress. And my mother nearly had a fit and said, oh, God, it's a terrible career. Don't do it. It's just it's so brutal. Just don't do it. And um, But I, I persevered, and, and that's all I ever wanted to do. And, and, and I certainly want to. And I was very lucky. I got out and got, got a good, you know, a good crack at it. How important was having uh, the sort of background in, in the theatre? I know you went to, to study at RADA. 
How how important was that later on when you were working in a lot of film and television to have that that grounding in the theatre? Well, I think it was very important, and I didn't have as much grounding in the theatre as I would have liked. Um, I I went pretty much into television very quickly, and then to film, uh, and. When I was doing the line in winter, Peter O'Toole said to me after we finished, he said, now you need to go away, get into repertory theatre, go away and just do huge parts, make a fool of yourself and really get yourself grounded. And of course I didn't. I I went off and did another film and then I got married and moved to L.A. and and all of those things. So life sometimes gets in the way of what you should, should be doing. But it was good advice and I wish I'd had more theatre experience um, but um, I had enough and I, I think um, it get, the main thing with the theatre is it gives you enormous confidence um, you know, you, know you, you, you get up there on your own and you really are on your own when you're on a film you've got a lot of support around you with the crew um, and, and um, on stage you really are on your own with the other actors so I think confidence is the main thing it gives you. After your move to LA, you were in a lot of shows which are now, I suppose, considered sort of cult genre classic shows, <laughs> like uh, like Mission Impossible, I know. Um, Six Million Dollar Man, Incredible Hulk, Elwood. Yes. Um, what was it like? W- was there any kind of big differences working on, on US TV shows like that compared to the ITC days? Money. <laughs> Money and time. <laughs> <laughs> because there was always so much money invested and we were doing shows that we took two weeks to do in England. We were taking 14 days to do a show in England and in in LA, they, they do them in seven. That was a big difference. And um, it, it's a bit more like a machine. I again worked with some wonderful actors. There are people who are really genuinely good actors. Um, I love Leonard Nimoy. He was a wonderful actor who kind of got um, trapped in this this part that he did in Star Trek, um, but he and I'm not putting him down for that. And good luck to him. But um, he was. I would like. It would be interesting to see him get out and do a lot more different things because he was so good. And then Bill Bixby, the same thing. He was another lovely actor, delightful man, very talented. And he said to me. Um, if you can get yourself a lead in three good series, he said, you'll be made financially for life because of the residual factor, if nothing else. Mm. And it's true. You know, the people that did these big shows, like Lee Majors did Six Million Dollar Man, then he went on to do, I think it was the stunt guy or the stunt man. Or his, I mean, Lee probably never had to, to do another day's work in his life if he didn't want to. The only downside is that you are playing this one character over and over again. Uh, the scripts are very workmanlike. They're not terribly challenging. They're all for, you know, formulaic. Um, and um, if you want to do different things, then you can't do them too much publicly. You have to go off and do them sort of in, in the theater and things like that um, to, to, um, because the public wants to see you in that one part. I was lucky because, um, well, I say lucky, it would have been nice to have got a whole series. But I was playing so many different types of parts that I, I had a good time doing it. And, um, you know, it, 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 the parts were so different. It was quite a challenge and quite, and as I said, good fun. Your move to LA must have been shortly after the uh, Golden Globe nomination for The Lion in Winter. 
Um, did that help in in sort of? Oh, yes. It was a massive, massive calling card. Um, <laughs> yeah, got an awful lot of doors opened for me. I, I had a lot of opportunities. The only problem was that, again, if you are in one film, in one part that is so hugely successful, uh, they typecast you mentally and, and emotionally. can't see you in anything different. And, in fact, I bumped into um, Steve Forrest. I don't know if you remember him. He was in England doing a series, and I can't remember the name of it now, which I was in. Anyway, I bumped into him, into him in the back lot of one of the studios, and he said, what on earth are you doing here? And I said, well, I live out here now and I'm working. He said, well, I'm afraid there's not much call for Lady Macbeth over here. You're <laughs> <laughs> not going to find it easy getting work. Um, and in a way, he was, he was, he was right. But I did get work and, and I had some nice parts. Are there any particular shows that, that you remember the most fondly or, um, or people that you worked with? I think we put top of the list Peter O'Toole and, and, and Patrick McGowan. Um, Catherine Hepburn, obviously. Um, Anthony Hopkins, although Tony and I didn't have a lot to do with each other in The Lion in Winter, but it was, it was nice to, to work with him and, and get to know him and, and, and we remained friends afterwards. I enjoyed working very much with Bill Bixby and Tom Selleck and Leonard Nimoy, as I said. I mean, I, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy working with all the other people I worked with, but these, these kind of top of the list. And um, I'm trying to think of the women that I worked with. I, I worked with Glenda Jackson, which I enjoyed. Glenda was, was, was quite a trip. Um, and also Dirk, Dirk Bogart. I enjoyed meeting and working with him. Uh, when you worked with uh, Leonard Nimoy, that was the episode of Mission Impossible that you did. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a departure for Leonard because we played lovers in it. And that wasn't the kind of role he normally was cast in. From being typecast from the Star Trek days. Yes. And, and being very sort of intellectual and everything. And this was a much more emotional, romantic part that he played. It, it did make me smile when I realised that the uh, the episode of The Avengers that you were in was called yes. Mission Highly Improbable. I and know. then a couple of years later, you were in Mission Impossible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Avengers was fun. I mean, everybody loved The Avengers, and, and they like our show particularly, because it, it, was so, it was kind of innovative, and everybody got shrunk, which was kind of fun. And I don't <laughs> think anyone's done it since, until they, this recent film with Matt Damon, which I really enjoyed. Anyway, Matt Damon and, and everybody else, and it gets shrunk. And I, I can't remember seeing any films or television shows where people get shrunk apart from that. It's quite an idea, a fun idea, isn't it? Downsizing, that's the name of the Downsizing, film. it. that was yes. it. That's the film. Very good film. Uh, very underrated film. When you were uh, sort of working on um, a lot of the shows in, in the US, were you also doing theatre at that time or did you start doing more theatre later? No, I, I did some theatre in the US. I did um, a lovely play which was written by um, an actor turned um, writer. Um, and the play was called Sea Marks by, oh, Gardner McKay was his name. And he'd had a big series. And this, this was a lovely play. It was, and, and so we did, I did that. And the other play I did, well, a couple of other plays, I did... Um, I did a single, a, a, a one-woman play about the actress Vivian Lee, which all takes place on the last night of her life. 
which was a real trip because I was on on stage for, for alone for the entire play. There was no one else on, and we did that in Atlanta for the fiftieth um, anniversary of the um, of the publication of Gone with the Wind. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other play I did, which was a real trip, was I did Arsenic and Old Lace with the Gabor sisters. If oh, you can wow. imagine that, Jaja <laughs> Neva, and that really was that was an experience. <laughs> I'll never forget. It was, it was very, it was very funny. The whole thing was hilarious. Looking at some of the work that you've been doing more recently, how did the idea behind the new Chilling Tales come about? Well, I was back in England and I was running a family business, so there wasn't much opportunity to to work. Although I did do a BBC television series, which I thought was awfully good, but the BBC, in their wisdom, put it on at such a peculiar time that it never really took off. It was called Accused, and it was a very simple show about people who were brought up um, in magistrate's court, and they were good stories, well-written and everything else, and it would have made, in my opinion, great afternoon television. But for some reason, they put it on at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. Don't ask me why, and of course, nobody saw it, and that was it. But it was a good show, and there were good people in it, and... um, so I wasn't much opportunity. And then I thought, well, a friend of mine had been, I had done a couple of short films for him, which I'd really enjoyed. Um, and then I thought, well, it would be fun to do one of my own. And, you know, they don't have to cost a lot of money. So I and, and an old friend of mine who had been my flatmate, actually, at RADA, I said, well, you know, if we're going to do uh, films, short films you can't just do one-offs because nobody's going to want to see them you really need to do a series and they need to be linked up somehow together mm-hmm. um so then we had this idea of doing a, a short film of the monkey's paw which we did uh which went well as i said it, 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 for me it was fun um because it was like going back to the early days of working in television when everything was done very simply very professionally and very very effectively uh, without this great thought about money all the time, you know, without you know, and everybody was sort of more on an equal the crew and the cast and we were all at one with each other and then when I came back to America I was living in Boise and I thought I must do something here because I'm going to get bored to death otherwise <laughs> and so I went on and did um, three more and because I've been largely financing them myself, I had to stop them because I've got a lot more that I would like to do. Um, but at the moment, there's just four of them, and I, I, I'm hoping that we can carry on do some more. There's talk about doing some more in England. Yeah. But there's a, a huge amount of stories out there, and um, <clears throat> I've just and, and a, lo- a lot of the time, I think people are a bit turned off because of period. And, and period hasn't been always successful. Although last night I was watching something on Netflix called The Frankenstein uh, Chronicles, which is Sean Bean. Have you got that? Have that there yet? I think it is on Netflix. Yes, I think so. It's yeah. so good. I mean, the, the 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 art department should be awarded an Oscar immediately. It is brilliant. Mm-hmm. The the, the absolute, absolutely the period and everything else. It is a really good show. Really, really good. So period seems to be making a bit of a comeback. Mm. And there's some great stories out there that we could do for New Chilling Tales, and I'd love to do more. But as I say, financing is not the easiest thing to get. 
um, to, you know, to, 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 to get people behind you to put the money up. It's as simple as that. I wanted to ask you about the yellow wallpaper in particular. We watched that one recently. Um, oh, and right. It was a, a, it was a story that, that I knew before. What was it, that story in particular? Well, it's a women's lip story, isn't it? It's a real woman's story. I mean, it really, it is the beginning. And, and, and Charlotte uh, Perkins Gilman was, was an early women's liver for, uh, because of the horrendous lives that women lived in those days with these sort of stultifying restrictions that they had where they couldn't move or think or, or breathe practically without the permission of their husband. And um, that's really what this story is about. And in, in the original story, of course, she was suffering from postpartum depression. Well, I was a bit old for that, so I said, well, we'll make it menopause instead. <laughs> um, and, you know, she literally drives herself mad. She's isolated hmm. and, and uh, unhappy and, and lonely. How were the, uh, the visual effects done for the, um, the, the movement behind the wallpaper itself? They're, they're, they were done by a local um, man here in, in, in Idaho. There's a, there's a good amount of talent here in Idaho in terms of crew um, who had a special effects company. And he directed it and um, he did the special effects. And I think he did a jolly good job. Did you like it? I did like it, yes. Yeah, oh, I did. good, good. I, I've got to go back and watch um, a couple of the other ones now. <laughs> Because they're all online, aren't they? They're all available to watch. Oh, yes, I, they are. I, and, and you can get to, uh, to them through my website. But they, that links back to YouTube and, and they're all free to watch, yeah. So is that one of the things that's changed so much um, over your career? Is I, I guess early on, if you wanted to do effects, it was almost always had to be some kind of practical effect or post exactly. effect. Um, is is it strange to sometimes just be acting in front of, I, I guess, a, a green screen sometimes? Well, we I did some acting in, in the yellow wallpaper in front of a green screen, and that, that was the first and only time I've ever done it. And I thought, this is the most boring, tedious way of working I can think of. <laughs> and I know that most of the actors in Hollywood are doing it. I mean, that's what it's all about now. They're just standing there doing, you know, waving their arms about and talking to non, non-existent people in front of a green screen. And for me, that is not acting. That is just not acting. You're not interacting with anybody or, um, you know, it might be fun for the people doing the special effects, but for an actor, I think it's deadly. But the audiences love it. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose they do. Although sometimes it seems that with films, that's almost all we seem to get now. That's all they're about. I mean, that's the great difference is that, that there's been so much thought, time and money put into special effects and, and dazzling the audience with all, all of this, that they've forgotten that the story has to have some validity and the story has to be interesting. And the people in the story have to be interesting. Otherwise, you don't care. Hmm. You just don't care. And, and you know, that, that's what's forgotten, I think. I mean, when, we didn't, when, when I was starting out, and we didn't have the money all the time or all the special effects. There were more plays on film, in a way. Um, and then as the effects grew, then, then it got a little bit different. But now I, I think it's so important to have a really good story with good people in it that, are, you know, to make you want to, to watch more of them. And so you wrote the adaptation for the yellow wallpaper for the short film. Yeah. Do you think that's 
almost sort of the way forward of, of people going out and actually creating the stories that they want to see um, on screen yeah. if, if they're not being made otherwise. I think so. I think that there's some, and there's some wonderful writers about, and there's plenty of them in, in Hollywood. The problem is that a lot of the time they write a great story and everything, and then everybody else decides that they're also a writer, but the producer's saying, well, I'm a writer, and they start to change everything. And that's when it starts to all go wrong. Because it's the old story, the old story, I forgive the pun, is that if you don't have a good script and a good story to start with, don't even bother doing it because you'll never get it right. You have got to start with a good story and a good script. If you've got those two elements to start with, then you're on, on to, you know, you're halfway there. Then the rest of it, your job is just to tell it. And that's, that's down to everybody making the film, all the crew and the actors. And that's, what, and that's your job. And it's great. It's wonderful when it works. But if you start off with a bad script, don't even bother. <laughs> Find a bad story. Do you think that a, a show like The Prisoner would even get made today? Well, they did make it. They remade it in Hollywood. And it was a disaster. Mm. Because they thought they could be clever and, and make it different. And or make it more up to date or make it more understandable for modern audiences. And that's the whole point of the show is that Patrick didn't make it for those reasons. He made it because that was a story he wanted to write and, and he wanted to tell. And that's what he did. And the audience responded to that. The audience are not stupid. They're, they're very bright. They know when they're being manipulated. But there's manipulation like Shakespeare if you will, because he's a genius writer. And there's manipulation of, of people trying to make money because they, and they're doing things just to think the audience will like this and therefore I'll make a lot of money. It doesn't work. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Oh, Beck, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you too. I have got another <laughs> film coming up um, and I've written another original story, which I think is very, very timely. I, I don't tell you about it too much at the moment because it'll, it'll give the plot away. Um, but I, I, you know, once we're a bit closer to to everything, I'll tell you more about it. And I, I think it's, I think it's a story that has, you know, great relevance and and will be interesting to a lot of people. And if people want to to keep up to date, you have a blog at janemero dot com. I do indeed. Yes. Yeah, so please, please watch, please read it, <laughs> people. Thank you, Jane, so much for joining us. And thanks, Bex, so much. Information. Information. So we'd like to thank Jane Merrow for taking some time out of her very busy schedule to chat with us about all things The Prisoner, Schizoid Man, and also her career, telling us about all the stuff that she's been up to recently. It was a real pleasure to talk to her, and we're really grateful that we were able to bring you this interview as well. We hope you enjoyed it. Jane has a really interesting blog that you can find at janemero.com and we're going to put links to all of these places on our website along with this episode for you to follow. Uh, there's also links to all the places where you can watch the new Chilling Tales short films. Uh, they're all available to watch online. You can also get them on DVD. We'll put all of those links up as well. One last thing before our episode closes. As always, we have our fortnightly look at the news from the world of The Prisoner with Rick Davey of The Unmutual. So, take it away, Rick. 
This is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Following the success of the 50 Years of the Prisoner event held at Elstree Studios in January of this year, The Unmutual website is again teaming up with Coit Media Limited for a very special event. Not a Number, a Patrick McGowan retrospective, is taking place on Saturday the 23rd of June 2018, again at Elstree Studios. Special guests who work with Patrick at various points in his career will attend and take part in exclusive on-stage Q&A sessions. There will be screenings of rare material and other attractions. Tickets for the event, which has been approved by the McGowan family, cost only £20, with all profits donated to Teagobyth Children's Hospice in North Wales. In other event news, the Eternal Village event in Seattle in September of this year continues to gather support and is now releasing several podcasts in the lead-up to the event. Check out their website for more details, theprisonercon2017.com. In other news, Network, who own the distribution rights to the Prisoner series, have revamped their clearance section on their website at networkonair.com. Included in the section is the 50th anniversary DVD set of The Prisoner, complete with special features, including documentaries, unseen footage and text commentaries for all the episodes. Also in the clearance section of their website is the Andrew Pixley book, The Prisoner, an Illustrated History, the 50th anniversary soundtrack CD set for The Prisoner, and the hour-long episodes of Danger Man, all at very low prices. Pigeon Guard Games, who in the past have created and made available several iconic buildings and gadgets from the Prisoner series, have two new models available to buy. The control room set from Number 2's Living Space at 11 99 and the telephone kiosk at 5 99 are now available from the Unmutual, Crooked Dice and other retailers. And finally... Fenella Fielding recently appeared on Steve Wright's Afternoon Show on BBC Radio 2 in the UK. The show is available on iPlayer and the link is also handily placed next to a download link to an archive edition of his show in which Peter Falk of Colombo fame talks about Patrick McGowan. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. So many thanks, Rick, for updating us on all the goings-on in the world of The Prisoner. If you'd like to know more, please go to www.theunmutual.co.uk and uh, you can also follow them at Unmutual website on Twitter. For now, that's the end of our episode all about The Schizoid Man, Episode 5 of The Prisoner. We'd like to thank you for sticking with us through the episode uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on not only this episode, but also the podcast in general. If you'd like to get in touch, please find us on Twitter at TFCAA, which is for Time for Cakes Now, which is our mothership podcast. You can go to our website and leave comments under any of our episodes. Uh, that's www.timeforcakesnail.com. We're also on Facebook. We have a page, which is uh, facebook.com slash time for cakes and ale and yeah we just love to find out if you're listening to the episodes if you're enjoying them uh you can go and find our podcast all over the place we're on itunes we're on stitcher uh, wherever you get your podcast from and if you are using itunes or anywhere that allows you to leave a review um, please if you have a few minutes do drop us a five-star review on itunes 
Uh, it really helps us get the word out about the show and it introduces our podcast to lots of other Prisoner fans as well. And it will also, uh, if you subscribe, allow you to keep up to date with all the other episodes we're doing as part of our Time for Cakes Nail, Time for Cherry Pie and Tally Ho streams as well. Yep. And next time we're going to be talking about the episode The General and we should have a very special guest but we haven't recorded it yet, so we'll probably wait till we have recorded it until we say who it is. <laughs> yeah, just in case we jinx it. Uh, but for now, signing off from the Tally Ho, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.